You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. The holiday season, so we had to celebrate one down there. And what better than the quokka and that smile and the charisma and... What can they teach us? And how the quokka went from not really that well-known to in 2018 or 19, it being really, really well-known um, and how celebrities... Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. So all smiles today, right? Like that's all, all you can think of when you see this, this animal. Just of course, <laughs> Chris. We're, we're talking about the happiest animal in the world. <laughs> yes, yes. It has to be. It has to be. So I, it's all smiles, so much fun prepping for this podcast this week, as far as Mm -hmm. the videos and the photos and the selfies, which we'll be talking about. So yeah, yeah, I'm just super happy to be back in Australia today, Mm -hmm. uh, talking about the quokka. Yep. It's the known as the happiest animal on earth, right? I've saw that. Mm-hmm. And we did promise our fans down under that we would do a species leading up to the holiday season. So we had to celebrate one down there. And what better than the quokka and that smile and the charisma and the cuteness and just melt your heart. Just melt your heart. Yes, Chris. When you had mentioned the quokka about covering it this week, I had known a little bit about it, actually only recently, and it started with an interesting behavior about the quokka and, <laughs> yes, do you know what right. I'm talking about? Yes, yes, yes. You told me that. I was like, oh my God, that was the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yes, yes. Yes. And so <laughs> there is a rumor out there that a quokka mom, which I'm a mom, so part of this I can relate to. The other part I was a little yes, shocked yes. by. <laughs> But that it will throw its joey at a predator when it needs to escape. And <laughs> yeah, you told me that. I was like, no, oh my goodness. Oh, I was dying laughing. That just the thought of that. Yeah. Oh. And so this this, I, this week I took the time to actually research that, find the article and the sources okay. and see if that's true or not. So so we will definitely be talking about that when we get to behavior on the podcast and answering the question of do Quackas throw their babies, their joeys. <laughs> the, the, I mean, the, the happiest animal on earth. And it's just the cutest thing with a smile. And take that little cute baby and just throw it or drop it or whatever. And then take 
turn tail and run. Okay, we'll find out. Right. That's true. So that's yeah. yeah. It didn't a lot of it didn't make sense in the beginning, and so yeah, I have to. I did some. <laughs> I did some d- deep dives and. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, but yes, regardless of the whole rumor out there that it might throw its baby, it's definitely a darling of the social media, uh, and we're going to talk about that too. How did and how the quaka went from not really that well known to in 2018 or 19 it being really really well known um and how celebrities even love this animal to pieces try to get selfies with it and so we'll have a whole selfie segment on what you should and shouldn't do when it comes to selfies with animals yeah no absolutely yeah no it's yeah it's it brings back memories of yellowstone people taking selfies with buffalo don't do it don't do it we'll we'll see what it is with the quokka because uh Angie's got some good stuff on it, but yeah, it's taking selfies with wildlife. You've got to be careful in Yellowstone. Do not do that. And to Chris, before we really get rocking and rolling, mm. I just want to let our listeners know that there's a couple different pr- pronunciations for Quaka. Just so you know, it's Q-U-O-K-K-A. And Chris and I will have a whole bunch of information on the, on our show notes to help give you some links today to some organizations that are protecting the Quaka. But typically... Throughout most of the world, Europe, Australia, it is quokka, but mm-hmm. it's also acceptable in the United States uh, to say quokka, kind of like it rhymes with mocha. So mm-hmm. you might see different pronunciations depending on which region you're in. But another name for the quokka is also the short-tailed scrub wallaby. Yeah, yeah. And with a name or another name like wallaby, that lets you know that it is in the marsupial or macropod family. And a fun fact is that the quokka is the smallest member of the macropod or a.k.a. Bigfoot macropod family, mm-hmm, which includes mm-hmm. the kangaroos and the wallabies. So yeah, Chris will, yeah. Chris will dissect all that when we get to evolution. And uh, I hope I'm excited. No, 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 no. I was, it was interesting that they, yeah, they, they were considered a small wallaby, but now they're kind of their own you know, genus. But yeah, we'll definitely talk about that when, when we get there. And just want to say a quick thank you to Dan. Joined us on Patreon this week. Sent out a really nice email. And, yes, uh, Dan- thank you, Dan. It was really touching. Yeah. It brought tears to my eyes. I, I just love those. <laughs> happy tears. I love those emails. And then shout out to Jennifer down at Kennesaw State. She sent us a nice email too, uh, talking to give us some uh, recommendations. It's kind of good timing because what she said, we're actually chasing. So uh, we'll be making that announcement soon on, on some big interviews that we got coming up. But yeah, thanks for joining us on Patreon. Helps us out, helps spread the word. And hopefully, you know, like we get our website and all that fun stuff uh, up and running and, and changing. But thank you so much, guys. And also, too, if you could take a quick minute or two and drop us a positive review on iTunes, that would be fantastic. Uh, Let's see if we can get those numbers up this month so that our podcast can be in higher circulation as far as nature and science and animal podcasts go. So we can get more listeners out there and help educate them to love, learn, and conserve all these awesome species that we cover. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Angie, when we say quokka... And you said wallaby. That's not when I first looked at him. That is not what I thought. I just thought it was a giant rodent that stands upright. Like that's what I saw. I see the cute, cute, cute rodent. But, yes, I think the first yeah. thing I noticed was their cuteness for sure. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, yeah, no, a wallaby or a kangaroo didn't really come to mind until I saw them 
sit up and I saw those large mm-hmm. feet for their body size mm-hmm. and of course their tail. And then there's a lot of videos of them moving. And when you see yes. them move, it's hands down, totally a macropod or a kangaroo-like yes, yes, yes. animal yeah. as far as it ho- literally hops. It does not walk. It does yeah. not have the capacity to walk. But one description I heard, which was just perfect for the quokka, is it's the size of a cat with the body of a kangaroo and a face of a smiling bear. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a teddy bear. I see that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, kind of yeah. that's that's the quick condensed version. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think in general it's, it's much smaller than a typical kangaroo or even a wallaby oh, yeah. for that matter. Yeah. Uh, but it does have a stocky build and really develop hind legs that when you go to its face, it has rounded ears. I guess maybe that's Somewhat in the rodent family or the, a lot of bear species have the rounded ears mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but its head is short and broad and it just has these cute little brown beady eyes and then a snout with a little brown black nose, if you will. Yeah. And it's always doing something with its hands. It kind of almost has like small little T-Rex yeah, hands, yeah, in, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Feeding and foraging. And then and then in regards to its fur, it's pretty much brown, for lack of better mm-hmm. terms. But it has a lot of blonde and black high points in it uh, to make its fur just really, really pretty. It's, it's got a mm-hmm. lot of uh, – it's got some of those uh, highlights and colorations along the tips that women would pay good money for, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, almost like a yeah, grizzly yeah. bear or something. Mm-hmm. No, oh, they're oh, they're just they're they're so charismatic, and so you you obviously need to look at pictures of Quokka, not if you're driving, but you know you have to look at the 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 social media posts. And, we'll and be asked. We'll put some. I have yeah. some. Of my I have a favorite compilation. I'll have. A, okay. We'll put up on our show notes. But yeah. But this whole happiest animal in the world tribute comes for a reason, and a lot of it are based on two traits: its personality uh, slash curiosity and friendliness, even though it's a wild animal. So Mm. we'll talk about that in behavior. But as far as its physical description goes, the other part of this link of the happiest animal comes from its face because it has permanent resting happy face. It does. (laughs) It really, like, almost like a doll. Like, if you think of a dolphin or something, it almost like just the way that its mouth corners curl up. So it can just be kind of just sitting there and looking around and it, it, I mean, it's not going to be like the cheesiest smile, biggest smile you've ever seen, but it does it does have like more of a tilted up, like happy smile mm-hmm. face than your typical kangaroo or wallaby or rodent. And then like when it opens its mouth, it makes a smile even more pronounced. Uh, just the way, evolutionary speaking, researchers don't know why, it makes a smile or the, the, the it makes the smile even bigger. And so it looks really happy. And <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons it's become a social media media darling and an internet sensation, uh, mostly overnight. And so really- <laughs> I just think it's like, you know, the predator comes, they smile at first to say, hi, trying to be nice. Oh, you want to eat me? Well, here, throw my kid at you. And then I'm out of here. <laughs> you know? It's like, I can just see that. I mean, these things are are amazing. They're amazing. And then just to just to tie this up, Angie, it's it's you know their bodies are they're roundish, you know, and they stand you know sixteen to twenty one inches in length. They're up to fifty five centimeters. Their tails are like almost up to twelve inches in length. Like you said, they they have big tails, and only weigh 
six to 10, 11 pounds, you know, up to five kilograms. So not big, not big when you think of kangaroos or even some wallaby species. Right. But, I have one cat that's bigger than that. I won't say her weight on the air. <laughs> bear Bear. Yeah, <laughs> she yeah, yeah, loves yeah. her food. And then yeah. I have another cat that is well well within the 10 pound range. So yeah. Yes, yeah. it all it all we're, all we're all built a little differently. But in general, <laughs> yeah, I think cat size is pretty pretty accurate for an average to not uh really big type cat. Right. Now, these range, like I said, in Australia, now they're very, very small range is in the southwest portion of Australia near Perth. Mm-hmm. Now, their historical range was north of Perth and then all the way down around Perth. But now today, they're limited on the mainland. Now, they are found off two islands. And the one that's really that we'll probably talk about a lot today is Rottnest Island. And that was actually named, and I'll get into some of the history when I get into evolution, but in 1696, a Dutch captain came, saw these animals, thought they were rats, and so called it Rat's Nest Island. But it actually, the quokkas were there, and and so that became Rot Nest Island. That's where a big population of them are, and where a lot of tourists and stuff go to, to see them. And then there are scattered populations south of Perth and around Albany. So so that's where they are. They're very, very small range uh, in Australia, not like the whole continent. No. And of course, when all this cuteness is said and done, one thing that Chris and I really want to highlight on the fact is that the quokkas are considered vulnerable by the IUCN. They have these very limit, this very limited range in WA, Western Australia, but it's mm-hmm. more Southwest. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, on the island, an island's an island, right? So you can you can only go so far. And because of that, the good news is that there are several groups working to help conserve them and get see if they can get their numbers up and make sure that mm-hmm. people are not interfering with them, even though they are so darn cute. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, ecological niche, Angie. I know you know you're you're going to kind of hit upon this. I mean, being a herbivore, obviously, and being a prey item, which you know. They either smile or throw babies at you to get away. But, you know, they, I mean, they definitely have a, a role in the environment around there. Absolutely, Chris. On the on the mainland of Australia, it's Australia. So I think there their role is a lot more defined as far as the food web or food chain goes because they are a herbivore, a medium-sized herbivore. And, and because they will consume like fruits and things like that once in a while, although I couldn't find anything in the literature, I would imagine they probably have a role as a seed disperser as well. And then at their a medium-sized meal for some of your larger, uh, larger predators as well. Now, when you look at the quokkas on the islands, like on Rottnest, there, it's a little bit different. There, they really don't have many predators. But on the mainland and on the island, there can be issues with feral cats uh, as far as taking them down, a nice tasty snack for a cat, for a carnivore like that, and yeah, foxes yeah. as well. So once again, it kind of depends on where they're at. But they're, but regardless of where they live, whether they're on the islands or the mainland, is they have been known to like create paths uh, of grass uh, as they travel when they're uh, feeding at nighttime and things like that. And so 
They definitely have a lot of interactions with the soil and the grasses and things like that. And then, Chris, I think when you're looking at their economic role, their positive role for humans with that, mm-hmm. well, being dubbed the happiest animal in the world by humans does not go unnoticed. And so because of that, probably the past five to 10 years at best, uh, a lot of tourism, especially on the island of Rottnest, which you mentioned, has just skyrocketed for lack of better terms as people want to see these animals uh, in in real life. They want to they want to see the cuteness for themselves. They want to take pictures of them. They want to learn more about them. And because of that, it's actually really helped their conservation. And we all know with ecotourism, sometimes there's there's pros and cons. And I think the story at mm-hmm. Rottnest is is somewhat similar. It's not unique where there's a few cons here and there, uh, and we'll talk about those in a second. But by far, the pros have outweighed the cons such that bringing this tourism to the island has really increased people wanting to save the species mm-hmm. and knowing mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. it and learning about it. And it's just been a really positive experience for not only the shopkeepers and the restaurants and things like that on Rottnest Island, but of course for the visitors as well. And then most people that go to Rottnest Island to see the quakas, of course, spend time in Perth, which is in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's the backseat to some of the other Sydney, uh, cities yeah. such as Sydney and things like that. And, yeah. and I, I, I have not been to Australia, so I can't speak for everyone. But this is drawing, it seems to be drawing more people towards Perth, which is sometimes not usually, not always on your on your bucket list, right? Right. Right, right, right. And another really important thing to consider, Chris, is in one area where the quakas live, it's called it's a protected area called Two People's Bay Nature Reserve. They actually coexist with the critically endangered Gilbert's Potoroo. And mm-hmm. yes, I like to think I'm an animal buff, but I'll be the first person to say, I don't know what I'm talking about, or I don't know, I don't know, I've never heard of that before. So I had to learn a little bit about the Gilbert's uh, Potoroo, which is why this mm-hmm. podcast is so fun. All these little rabbit holes we go down. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what this Potoroo is, um, is Australia's most endangered marsupial. And it's one of the rarest mammals in the world. And it's critically endangered. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a small nocturnal macropod. So related, uh, of course, to the quacko and kangaroos and wallabies and things like that. So people's interest in the quokka have of course also benefited other species as well. It's good that when you have even a small species like this, again, less than two feet tall uh, is providing protection for other species. You know, usually we think of these megafauna protection, you know, umbrella that we talk about with elephants and rhinos and all that stuff. Here you have a small marsupial, that is actually protecting something that's critically endangered or helping. So that's good. And, you know, being vulnerable themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's really quite fascinating. And I, of course, did a lot of research and watched a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of YouTube videos and mm-hmm. I was reading a lot. But the thing that's really striking in the past 10 years or so about the quokka is just how much media sensation it's, it's gathered. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the story goes that in 2010 – the quokka was somehow on the internet being videoed or photographed 
and this picture of its face that looks like it's just beaming in a yes. smile uh, yeah. became a symbol of positivity, and then it got dubbed the world's happiest animal. And since then, the, a lot of these photos, just that amateur people have taken, it's not necessarily National Geographic going in and taking in these photos, although I'm sure they have, just Joe Schmo or whatever taking a photo mm-hmm. and putting it on Instagram or on Facebook, and people, it just goes viral. But then the Quaka's celebrity success has also been celebrated by many uh, other celebrities, human celebrities, including uh, Roger Federer, the tennis player, Chris Hemsworth, Shawn Mendes, Margaret Robbie, Hugh Jackman. So a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of these famous people too want in on the action and want to see these beautiful and super charming and curious and super cute. Quaka's up and personal. And in fact, I watched the video of Roger Federer uh, taking yeah. a picture. And the picture of Roger Quaka. Federer with a Quaka is just like ridiculous. <laughs> like ridiculous. And that's the thing. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. As I kind of went down this Quaka selfie rabbit hole uh, just to learn more about it, uh, I like each each photo was just better than the one before. And so, but of course, me being a scientist and a skeptic always, you know, my first question is like, is this a good thing? Um, And is it, is it safe for the animals? And Mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. briefly, uh, yes and yes, uh, for the most part. Uh, What has happened is on Rottnest Island is the quakas are very inquisitive, uh, very friendly uh, towards people for the most part. Of course, there's always that outlier there. And they've adapted to human presence. In fact, if you're a shop owner uh, on Rottnest Island, they're actually kind of annoying because they'll like come up. That, yeah. They'll like like hop <laughs> yeah, right into much. your shop. Like yeah. no nobody's, but they're the, like the island darling, so you can't be mad at them. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But they they're very you know they're very very inquisitive and and so with that, people that camp or people that hike, I mean, are just in the streets you can have a quokka come right up to you. And all of that, I think, is mostly okay. But there are several rules in place, like you are not supposed to feed them and you are not supposed to touch them. And there's heavy fines if you do. And, of course, there's, like, rangers and people in place to help to try to enforce that. Now, you and I both know that there, unfortunately, are people that experience ecotourism and can't follow the rules. And yeah. so I, one of the downsides is, is for the very few people that aren't following the rules that have to touch them. And I understand the instinct. I, I do. I do. And so I think a lot of us is trying to educate yourself before you go there. But if you touch these creatures, especially small ones that are not weaned from their mother yet, their mother will reject them and they will die of starvation. So it's best not to touch them and like get any of your, if you get any of your scent on them, your perfume, your deodorant, whatever you smell like, the mom just, the mom won't mean to, but she won't recognize them. And Mm -hmm. so it's just in their best interest to look, snap a photo if you can, but do not touch. Um, And the same thing with feeding and drinking goes, and we'll talk about it when we get to nutrition. They actually don't need much water because they get it from the plants. And so- Mm -hmm. Like bottled water is like not good for them. And then, of course, feeding them generates a whole host of more problems than it helps them. And so I know it's it's a way to get bitten as well. And it's just really frowned upon on the island. Of course, 
they want the tourists to come and enjoy themselves, but they don't want them feeding them or touching them or giving them water. And for the most part, I think a lot of people are listening. And so if I had to just give it my own opinion, which of course is just my opinion and it's not based on sci- science because I couldn't find a, an impact study about uh, tourists and, and like guaca health, that uh, I couldn't find anything like that. But in general, it seems to be helping them more than it is harming them as long as people can play by the rules. Yeah, there was that one study I pulled up. Oh, I'll have to look for it. I, I remember where most ecotourism, people looking at animals, doing things helped. It was just the New Zealand's uh, fur seals, I think, were the ones that it was disrupting uh, moms and babies that had a negative effect on population growth. Ecotourism exactly. Most, I, mm-hmm. God, I almost want to say quokkas were in that study, but okay. oh, I'll have to find it. Oh, it was like 10 pods ago, 10, 10 or 20 species. I don't know. It's, it's a yeah, while ago. So. And, and I think and the other thing too is, and of course this creature is curious, but they have been known to bite people. Uh, not, And that's pretty rare. It's usually children. But in the same instance, they do that because somebody else has fed them ahead of time. You know, and so the best thing is to just not feed them. And the whole selfie obsession with a quokka is, I don't know if I would do it just because I typically don't take selfies with wildlife. Uh, Of course, I take selfies with um, some of my zoo animal friends and my pets. But in the same instance, this one would be really tempting. So I, 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 and I, and I must, and at the end of the podcast, I'll, talk a little bit about Alan Dixon, who is known as this king of animal selfies and has really helped generate the quokka into stardom. And so he actually has a a wonderful video on how to take a selfie with a quokka and do it safely without breaking your rules, without touching it, without feeding it. Uh, And so we'll we'll talk about that a little bit towards the end of the podcast. We're talking about conservation because Alan's done a really nice job of actually... uh, taking some people's interest in the quokka and turning it into conservation money towards conservation. So, uh, yeah, it's, but it's really, it's just a fascinating, fascinating, uh, movement on the internet. And I was listening to some video commentators like, well, is this short lived or will this interest in quokkas last? And I'll tell you what, Chris, if you and I have any saying it, yes. And our friends down in Australia, down under, yes, it will. And it should. And I know, uh, when you head back that way towards New Zealand, yeah, I'm gonna put you on the Quaka mission for sure. <laughs> I will, I will, I will. I've got you know, it's just whenever we go to Australia, it's like okay, I gotta go see Lee in Sydney, and then Chantel. Shout out to her, uh, who actually got her all creature shirt today. She posted on Instagram uh, down in Melbourne. Then I gotta go all the way over to Perth and see the Quakas, and then fly all the way back to New Zealand. So your life yeah. is so hard. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, and then I gotta go to Tasmania and find the Tassie Devils, and then I'll go in the outback and I will find the Tasmanian tiger still alive. It is That's not right. extinct. I'm telling you. <laughs> so yeah, Angie, I, you know, we're back in Australia, and and I've kind of went. It was curious to see what the statistics were on the Australia fires because. Obviously, with 2020 being a 2020 has been one heck of a year for uh, everybody, but we we kind of forget that Australia. Well, I'm sure our friends down under don't forget, but it started off with with a bang, you know, with Australia with the massive, massive fires. So I just wanted to kind of give people an update on, on what we know and what happened and what the outlook is, you know, going forward for Australia. 
Uh, some of it's good news too. So it's still horrific what happened, but uh, there's, there's some silver linings in here. So overall, there was over 18.6 million hectares burnt. Wow. Okay. So that that's almost 72,000 square miles, which is like 80% of the United Kingdom. <laughs> so Crazy. I was like, Crazy. yeah, or like the... Or like the entire state of Washington, the United States, burnt down. Like massive, massive, massive fires across Australia uh, this past year. Uh, The conservation land, this was land devoted strictly to conservation and the species. Four and a half million hectares burned or 17,300 square miles. Now we know if you go back to our episodes, most of these were lightning strikes and natural phenomenon. It wasn't people setting fires in the bush. There was some instances of that. It was very rare. And most of this was just was natural because Australia was going through such a uh, horrific hot uh, summer. Now, when the map, and I'm going to put this map up, it, I should, it's, it's actually a really cool map that I, I think uh, it was off National Geographic, but shows where a lot of these fires were, uh, Northwest Territory, Queensland, and then obviously New South Wales and Victoria got the brunt of it. Kangaroo Island, you know, really was horrific there, which I'll talk about here in a second. So fortunately for the Quokka, the, the fires were down there in Western Australia in the area, but not really widespread like other parts of Australia, you know, really the East coast has got, is where they got hammered. Now effect on species, again, over 3 billion animals are estimated to have died in these fires. Three billion. That's crazy. Uh, Yeah. Birds, reptiles, kangaroos, you name it. Uh, Very, very horrific uh, what happened there. Now, they estimated uh, 49 threatened species had 80% of their habitat loss, and then 77 species had roughly 50% of their habitat loss. So those were the ones I remember in our talk, Angie and I talked about earlier in the year, where we both were like in tears at the end of it, just thinking about these fires. There were some species that I was very worried about. And the one I brought up was the Kangaroo Island Dunnert, because this was one of the most endangered animals in Australia. And they estimated there's only about 500 animals left on Kangaroo Island. And the, pretty much their habitat got scorched, like totally destroyed. Okay, when's, when's the good news coming? <laughs> but, okay, but okay. here it is. But they had 22 sightings on camera traps this year of Dunnards alone. So they okay. did survive. Awesome. They did survive. There, there is a, a population that did survive. And there was researching some of this, you know, and even following it all year, some species could be under their burrows and survive fires. And then they come out and then, you know, things right. yeah. sprout. So life, life is tough, you know. I mean, animals are tough. We're tough. You know, we, we, we can't survive some things, but when you lose your entire habitat, that was kind of sketchy. But the good news is they, they look good. Now, I, I, the other species I wanted to highlight was the koala, which isn't so hot. Um, the fires burned about 80% of the Blue Mountains World Heritage Area, which is supposed to be just gorgeous. One of the areas I really want to get to, New South Wales. The estimated population, about 15,000 koalas there. They figured about a third of them, about 5,000 koalas died in just New South Wales alone. 
overall, they estimate about 30,000 koalas have died across Australia during the fires. So koalas took a, a, a massive hit. Now, when we covered koalas, I think over a year ago, the Australian Koala Foundation estimated there's anywhere from 43,000 to 100,000 koalas left in Australia. Some controversy there. Some people think they're the high estimate's 300,000. So 30,000 koalas, that's still at least 10% of the population, if not upwards of 30 to 40%. So it was pretty, pretty devastating to, to them. Uh, other impacts, uh, not to ruin your day, but 900 million tons of carbon dioxide was released in the atmosphere. And Australia nor- in their normal year dumps about 535 million tons of carbon dioxide. So the fires alone doubled on top of what they normally put out. So not good. Some good news, though, Angie, is this year, I guess it's been really wet down in Australia. Okay. So the fire season doesn't look that bad going into 2021. Some hot spots in Queensland that they're worried about, but it, it looks pretty good. Temperatures across Australia this year, really in the north and the south, like Tasmania, is where they're expecting way above or exceed normal temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, across most of Australia, there's like a 25, 30% chance that the the medium temperature will be higher than normal, but it doesn't look like they're going, going to go through this massive heat wave again. Well, good. They deserve to catch a little bit of a break. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And they've done a great job with COVID. I mean, the country's, you know, uh, doing pretty well. So going into 2021, it looks like Australia has got a reprieve, but climate change is real. I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir that listened to this podcast, but it's something that, you know, it does have real impacts and we can't lose sight of it. I want to go back to the Amazon rainforest, you know, and, and we'll touch upon that in another podcast, but you know, that's on fire and, and it was on fire all summer. We just didn't cover it because of the pandemic. And that's an area that that's got me really worried, really worried that uh, we're devastating the, the know, rainforest. There's that, so that, many endangered species to cover there. Yeah. So yeah. send us, if you have it, one in yeah. particular uh, that you'd like us to cover, please reach out to Chris and I via Facebook, Instagram, or email. And uh, we always love hearing your requests. It helps helps generate good ideas for us. And and especially if you're a Patreon member, uh, we those usually get bumped yeah. up more yeah. early priority yeah. as yeah. well. So They do. They do. They we, do. Love, we love hearing from everyone. Yeah. Yeah, we do. It's, it's, it's always great to, to get nice emails. So, yeah, we're going to keep our eyes on it. And, you know, the, the quokka, luckily, it, it wasn't really impacted by the fires too much. And so that's good news. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And like I said, Angie, these were discovered in 1696. William de Vlaming was one of the first explorers to reach Australia back way back then. And now he described them as being like rats, but now we know, and like you said earlier, these are marsupials. So the order is Diprotodontia, and these are all the marsupials, right? So there's 334 four surviving marsupial species. 200 of them are native to Australia or the islands north of Australia. Cause there's, I think a, a tree one kangaroo that you're dying to do. Oh yeah. That we will do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where are the others? Do you remember? Well, we oh, have gotta... one here in North America. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You remember. Okay. Yes. <laughs> You're on your you're on your game today. You're right. So one in North America, the a very opossum. important one that helps reduce our tick population, which is yeah, good because I find them all the time on me and the pets after I leave the horse farm. <laughs> okay, so you're good. Okay, and then the rest in South America. Mm-hmm. So we have we have a bunch down there too. So, but we haven't covered a South American marsupial yet. No, no, we will. We will. Okay. We should. Mm-hmm. We should. Yeah, there's probably some interesting ones down there. Now, like Angie said, these are macropods, macropodidae is the family. So this is the wallabies, kangaroos, tree kangaroos, wallaroos, and quokka. Mm-hmm. So they're actually like their own little segment within that family. Now, the genus is Cetonyx. So that's really easy. I love it. S-E- I think it's like the easiest I've ever had. S-E-T-O-N-I-X. <laughs> no, we're just getting that. You're just, I shouldn't say we. You are just getting that much better at pronouncing that yeah, name. Yeah, Satonix. Satonix brachyurus is the, the species name. And so they're the only species in that genus. Now, again, to remind everybody, marsupials evolved in North America, went to South America, Went to Antarctica, of all places, because 55 million years ago, Antarctica was actually had animals on it. It wasn't an ice cap. Then Australia was actually part of Antarctica, where these marsupials migrated. Then when Australia broke off Antarctica and started migrating north, a lot of these marsupials got you know, isolated on that massive continent and then did some things up into, um, you know, North, the North islands and then Tasmania, things like that. So always interesting when you look at marsupials that they started in North America and made their way South and then, uh, East, West, who knows. Now the Quokkas, uh, the Quokka specifically, it's closest relatives, the rock wallaby. So like Angie said, very similar to wallabies. They have been around in Australia for over 20 million years. Obviously, not a lot is known on quokka evolution per se. Just they don't have the, the fossils, the fossil record. So they think that they've been down there for hundreds of thousands of years. Where, and then Angie said, once the arrival of Europeans, that went down to like 2,000, you know, animals left. So there's a species. That's why I said they, they've been around for hundreds of thousands of years in that part of Australia. We show up. Europeans, not 
humans, Europeans show up and then you see this drastic drop where they almost went extinct, but they're on their way back. So hopefully we, we keep them around. Yes. That's that. Like I said, that might be the, the most beneficial thing of a selfie ever. Right. Yeah. 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 Now there was, since there wasn't a lot on evolution, I had to find a cool marsupial predator. Ooh. So this one I haven't done yet is Thylacolio. It's it's Thylacolio. How about that? Okay. That should be that should give you a hint of what they called this thing. A lion. Yeah, a, a marsupial lion or a pouch lion. Oh wow. So, yeah. So so we had the tiger, but this is totally different. This is huh. called the marsupial lion that lived. For, from 2 million years ago up to 46,000 years ago. So one of the larger predators in Australia, and they call it a, a lion because it was like a small lion, weighed up to 300 pounds, you know? It's good size, yeah. Yeah. Now, 46,000 years ago, they went extinct, and it makes you go, huh, what happened around then? And that is when humans first came into Australia, the Aborigines, about 50,000 years ago. So they think either human impacts and climate change as the climate was changing, uh, drove them to extinction. But there was a, a lion like marsupial running around Australia. So I think that one's pretty, I'm pretty sure that one's extinct. You know, the, the Tassie tiger. <laughs> there, are, there haven't been any, could be. there haven't been any, any yeah. sightings lately. No, not in a hundred years, but anyways. All right. Uh, Jumping into physiology, Angie, I mean, not a lot with the quokka. I mean, lives up to 10 years. You talked about them moving. Uh, they have the pouch. They can't climb trees. I did read that. So they have, you know, sharp claws. You mentioned that and teeth. I just couldn't find a lot that was different than your standard, you know, wall wallaby. Well, yeah, Chris, you're right. I mean, besides the, them being on the smaller scale and some of the personality traits that we'll talk about here shortly, they do. They move like a kangaroo. They kind of look like a kangaroo. When we get to reproduction, we're going to learn uh, a, that it's very similar as far as them mm -hmm. having the pouch. And that's always a fun mm -hmm. one. I love, I love, 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 love talking about macropod um, reproduction. But one thing that really sets them apart from kangaroos is that you're going to mostly see quokkas on the ground, hopping, foraging, things like that, socializing. But quite contrary to their bigger cousins, kangaroos, kawakas can climb trees if they need to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's actually photos of them being, you know, a meter too high. Uh, and they don't necessarily do it all the time. It's not like you're going to find a whole bunch of them in trees, but depending on how their foraging is going or if they want to get away from something, um, you, you'll see them just skedaddle up the trees. And they don't typically go too high. Usually they're found at about one to two meters up, but that's still pretty high. Uh, considering considering how they climb that, I haven't totally figured out because they have those those large hind legs, mm -hmm. but then they have those tiny little arms. So quite a fascinating behavioral trait that they once in a while will exhibit when they need to, when they need to, to either get other food or some researchers suggest it might be like a play behavior. So, but charming than the least no yeah i i, I want to see that i want to see them them jump up 
uh, a tree and see how the heck are these big feet and small little hands. Oh, that would be something fun to watch. And then, I, you know, I don't know if I said it or not, but they live up to they can live up to ten years. And then jumping to nutrition, I mean, it's a herbivore, eats leaves, bark, stems, plants. You know that that's what they do. You already mentioned that they they don't need water for long periods of time. They store a lot of stuff in their tail. Mm-hmm. And I think the only interesting fact I found, I was like, wow, I didn't know that, is they regurgitate their food because they ruminate it and chew it like it's cud, like a cow. Exactly. Like, so a, here we yeah. have a, a cat-sized marsupial, the, the body of a kangaroo, and the face like a smiling teddy bear, and chews its food like a cow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what? Yeah, yeah they do. So, they yeah, they'll regurgitate yeah. some of. Um, they don't chew it too much, so they'll swallow it mm. more whole, and then they regurgitate it up later, and then chew it more, and then swallow it back down like a cow. So, <sighs> pretty fascinating. And yeah, 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 yeah. And they will get some water from uh, eating succulents. So mm-hmm, those are mm-hmm. the water storing plants. And I also, as you mentioned, Chris, I found it really fascinating that they can survive a long time without food and water. Um, in fact, they store a lot of fat in their tails. And so if you're a macropod, your tail, besides being cute, is really important. It does help you balance as you hop. And the tail also helps macropods, uh, wallabies, kangaroos, and aquacas alike, lean back and sit up on the two feet. And then a lot of times you'll see them foraging, which just helps with their cuteness, right? They're, they're leaning mm-hmm. back on their tail and on their legs. Um, but yeah, they, they, they store a lot of fat in that tail that can be used um, for energy sources when food is scarce. And then jumping into behavior a little bit in regards to how they forage, they are nocturnal. So they are typically foraging at nighttime. However, if you do go to some place like Rottnest Island to see them, all the videos are shot during the day. I think that they've acclimated a little bit more to people and the interactions. And so you can see them foraging around and moving moving about during the day. But their their natural history does suggest that they're actually uh, that they rest during the hot the heat of the day, right, and then come out to do their activity and forage more when it is cooler at nighttime. And speaking of temperatures in Australia and how it can be hot, uh, the quokka has a great ability to regulate its body temperature. And so when it is hot, it can cool itself down, and vice versa. If it's cold, it knows how to heat itself up. So it's adapted very, even though at one point in time, as Chris mentioned, some of its ancestors were in the Antarctic or what is now the Antarctic, uh, they've, they've adapted really well to uh, life in uh, southwestern Australia. And the other thing you'll see when you're watching videos uh, or just reading about quokkas is they're together. So they're a very social animal. They're usually pretty peaceful with each other, even if they are enemies or if it is during the breeding season. There's not going to be a ton of aggression like is known well, with male kangaroos, which are known to quote unquote box um, when they get over, they get into territorial or reproductive breeding right disputes. That's not, you're really not going to see that a lot with quokkas. They're typically pretty just, just happy. I mean, this is where they're curious and social and even calm demeanor is that second half of why they're the happiest animal on earth. Besides, of course, the smile, they just play the part as far as being laid back. And once again, of course, with their interactions with humans are typically laid back. They can bite, but uh, usually don't. But with with each other among their social structures, uh, they are pretty 
pretty kind for the most part. And on the mainland, the quokkas are going to live in small colonies. They're typically family groups. It can be one to two individuals up to like two dozen. Now on Rottnest Island, uh, they're going to live in a lot larger groups. And it's probably just because it is an island and there's not as many resources. But there you can see large groups up to 150 individuals. Researchers do think that they're actually more social on the mainland as far as how they interact among their family groups or their colonies that they're in. Where on Rottnest Island, you might see them in larger numbers, but they're not necessarily more social there. They think that they probably are aggregating in those large of numbers for limited food and water resources. So they have to learn to be together. They don't, might not like the high numbers, but they need to, to, they need to, to get food. Have- see 150 of them oh <laughs> everybody smile Every, yeah yeah. Okay, yeah i know i can't get my awesome. ki- i cannot get my kids to smile on command yeah, yeah, uh when yeah. we're trying to take like family photos or whatever but i have a feeling yeah. that a quokka would just like with a natural smile would just be like yeah, so easy yeah. right and as often seen with animals that are social there's there depending on how large the group is there can be a hierarchy and in regards to males it's often going to be due to size um, and weight. So a larger male is going to be a little bit more dominant. But once again, they're typically not trying to cause trouble with any of the other males. Uh, the only trouble, once again, might be either a dispute over shelter or once again during breeding season. But typically all quokkas will come back during the day to the same shelter. And then if somebody else tries to get in their shelter, they, you know, they'll have a little bit of a, a little bit of a skerfuffle, if, that, if that's the word. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> Over a little it. slap fight with those little yeah, arms. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, nothing, nothing major. Um, no, no, yeah, yeah. But they do know how to communicate with each other. In general, the literature says, oh, they're not vocal. And so they're not, there's, a, there's not a, there's not a vocalization here that I can play on air like I love to do when I get the chance. Chris knows that. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But for people that work with them a lot, uh, they can be a little bit more vocal. Um, I was listening to a talk by a, per, uh, a zookeeper in Perth that was working with them and said that, oh, yeah, they do this really cute vocalization every time they're about to get fed. So they they do make noises. Um, but noise, yeah. Yeah. And then they, they're like, if they feel threatened, I know they'll hiss and things like that. Uh, but I think it is a good point to mention, which I don't think I have yet, as far as Regardless of their curiosity and how docile they are and inquisitive to humans, they do not make good pets. Uh, in fact, like it's illegal them, yeah. and many of these, um, in fact, it's illegal to touch them or feed them and a lot of these places where they're found. Uh, but in general, yeah, they, they're vulnerable. They do not make good pets. Um, and I think I'm pretty sure it's illegal. They're illegal to have as pets. So their cuteness needs to be like from the selfie stick and or on the internet uh, with selfie oh. compilations and things like that. They they sure. will not do well if uh, if you bring them home. This is fact, endangered species. I mean, these are yeah, exactly. You know, and and yeah. well, and as we mentioned, like even just touching them out in the wild can like turn them into orphans, which mm-hmm. you know they're not going to survive if they're an orphan. So yeah. yeah. Uh, but when it does come time to make more quokkas, uh, they have what's known as a promiscuous mating system. And the breeding season is going to be between January and March when it's a little bit cooler out. And that's where the dominant male who's bigger and stronger, he that's where he's going to show his tough stuff to uh, the female. by, And that's where he'll fight with a smaller subordinate male to hopefully to win her love. But 
I love this about quackas. It's the female. She's the one that decides what male she wants to mate with. Uh, and she decides pretty quickly. If she doesn't like him, she just runs away and goes on to the next male. So it's kind of, it's like a, you know, uh, a, a <laughs> nice. dating. Yeah, yeah. It's so like yeah, speed yeah. dating. Like, mm, See, um, nope, okay, no, nope, no, nope, no, okay, no. yes. And no. uh, for whatever reasons, researchers don't necessarily know why, but when she does decide that um, a male is to her liking, she'll stay with him and groom him and let him know that she she's interested in breeding. And once they have bred, they'll usually spend a couple seasons together. Uh, so in her lifetime, if she's living 10 years, she's just going to have two or three partners throughout her reproductive lifespan. And what I found quite interesting is that the male will defend a female, but only after he's mated with her. So before then, forget about it. You can sleep in her shelter. It's no <laughs> yeah, big deal. Yeah, do whatever. Uh, you can you can bother her kid yeah. or Joey. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But once he's made with her, he's like, oh, okay, no, no. Then he then he steps up to the plate. It's my uh, it's my woman. Yeah, this, yeah. this is my quaka. Yeah, this exactly. Is my, my baby. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I got it. Got it. Yeah. Uh, but once they do breed, uh, the female's gonna be pregnant for about a month, and then she'll give birth to typically one Joey. And for those of you that haven't listened to the Kangaroo podcast, uh, I always describe kangaroo reproduction because I used to care for them uh, mm. when I was a zookeeper in Chicago. Um, it, it's really quite eye-opening as joeys are born, whether it's a kangaroo wallaby or a quokka, as highly underdeveloped. And so for kangaroos, which are much, much, much larger, I described it as a little jelly bean size mm -hmm. nub that had like little arms for nubs and little legs and eye buds barely. And it was like pink mm -hmm. with no fur. And it basically crawls from the mother's vaginal region where it's born up and then goes into the pouch. And inside the mm -hmm. pouch are where uh, the teats or the nipples are going to be that it can latch onto and just basically stays, the little jelly bean stays latched there for a while getting nourishment and then starting to really develop its fur and further grow its arms and opens its eyes. And so it'll stay in there for a long time before you ever see that little Joey head pop out. And that's similar to the quackas, right? Cause they're, they're in the, in the family, but boy, when those heads do pop out of that mom's pouch, they are adorable. And by the time, yeah. by the time the Joey pops out of the pouch, the little head it is obviously fully, it looks like an, a, a miniature version of an adult quokka. It's mm -hmm, fully developed mm -hmm. by then, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it, it hangs out in the pouch. It goes for rides for a long time. Um, with, and then around six months, that's when you're really going to see the quokka coming out and starting to, to do a lot more foraging and, you know, getting, getting a little bit more away from mom. But... It's pretty fascinating that the male, although he will defend the female in some ways after he's bred her, he really doesn't do much with any parental care. And then that Joey will become an adult and mature uh, and be ready to reproduce around 10 to 12 months old. Mm -hmm. But Chris, what's really key about macropod reproduction is that while mom has just given birth to a Joey... It's, you know, the little jelly bean and, and a quokka, it's going to be much smaller. Maybe it's like a grain of rice. Mm. I don't know the size difference exactly. I couldn't find that in the literature. But while that's inside the pouch, latched onto a teat, getting mom's milk nutrition to grow and grow and grow, mom is shortly bred again um, mm -hmm. and gets pregnant again. 
And while she just gave birth and gets pregnant again, the embryo enters what's known as diapause. And we talk about this in a lot mm-hmm. of delayed implantation. Mm-hmm. Species, and so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening is there's basically an embryo attached to the uterine wall just on freeze. And researchers don't fully mm-hmm. understand the, the chemical signal, signaling and how this is done. It's, it's always fascinated Chris and I, but that's a different pod mm-hmm. for a different day. But it does, and it just hangs out there. And it remains dormant, not doing anything. Not The cells don't divide, you know. For up mm-hmm. to five months. And somehow, this is what's so fascinating about animals and just physiology and reproduction. Mm-hmm. After about five months, the body can detect whether or not that original Joey that she was nurturing, yeah. you know, did it survive? Is it still nur- it yeah, must be, yeah, have yeah. to do something with lactation or, you know, basically, okay, is it time for me to like, not me. Is it time for this diapause, this embryonic diapause to stop and start developing? Just super fascinating. So the way that I always tell it when it comes to kangaroos, and I'm sure it's mostly similar for quokkas, is when you look at a kangaroo, they have usually like a one or two year old, like hopping around kind of near them off on their own, but still checking in with the family, like an auntie Mm -hmm. or uncle. They've got a joey in the pouch sticking its head out, being annoying and heavy. (laughs) And then they have literally a bun in the oven, like ready to go. So so it's just from a insurance policy. Yeah. 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 Being a mom myself, it just blows my mind. I'm like, that is, that is some extraordinary reproductive physiology, my friends. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's, yeah, they're successful. They're successful. Now, before we move on, you got to you gotta answer the question because when you told me that story, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Does a quokka throw its baby at a predator to get away? <laughs> and then it has the backup policy now. Now we know within the first five months, oh, we can throw that one out. I got another one. I got another butt in the oven. So, you know, yes. <laughs> it's a good strategy. Well, Chris, you're onto something, right? I mean, there's yeah, some right, evolutionary right. backups, right? Like we all need yeah, a, yeah, you yeah. know, a backup husband or boyfriend or something. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> if you're listening, John, I don't, I don't have yeah. anything like that. Um, but, uh, or backup kids, even worse. Like if my kids yeah, are there you listening, go, there you yeah, go, yeah. I don't have any backup yeah, they kids. They need to listen. Yeah, yeah, They yeah. need to listen. Yeah. Uh, but how about this? The short answer is... No, they don't throw their babies. The yeah. long answer is yes, sometimes babies become a sacrifice for them when they need to escape predators. Okay. 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 And so just the quick history on this, I guess yeah. in 2018, there was a post by a group called Animal Facts, which I'm not familiar with, but I mean, obviously you and I love Animal Facts. And so uh, mm-hmm. where it, it had either meme or something on there uh, suggesting or saying that a quokka will throw its baby as an anti-predator defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. Well, the internet blew up with it because it's, I mean, especially if you're a parent, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. kind of hilarious. <laughs> it's, it's a, it I mean, is kind of funny because sometimes you wit, yeah, you little... Yeah, I mean, I, I I like to think that I would like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but at any rate, uh, and that, and I heard about it. I think I heard on an NPR like quiz show or something. And so that's when I looked it up and I didn't do any, I didn't do due diligence. I think I just spread the rumor to you and was like, Chris, this is, we got, we we need to cover the species and and, like explore this rumor sometime. Yeah. And then I forgot about it and we moved on to whatever species I was supposed to be doing my my homework for that week. <laughs> but since this week was all about quokkas, I did the deep dive 
And what the actual truth is, the throwing part is inaccurate. And it's inaccurate for several Mm -hmm. reasons. There's no literature to back it up. In fact, Alan Dixon, who I'll talk about here in a second, uh, the animal selfie guy, he did a great job of actually reaching out to Animal Facts and uh, looking for the paper. So I got my hands on the paper. I read it myself. Uh, It's a paper out of wildlife research in 2005, uh, looking at the mortality and survivorship of the quokka. And what the paper does say and mention is that if a female quokka that has a joey in her pouch is in a life-threatening situation or interaction with a predator, she may expel her offspring while while doing a, a vocalization. And therefore, the the offspring on the ground will also make some vocalizations and be a detractant for the predator <laughs> and the female would maybe. So it is true. It's horrible. Well, but, 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 but listen. Oh yeah, yes, I mean, yes. I mean, I get it. It's either both of us or you. So you go right. But <laughs> like, but I think the key, the key, the, 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 there's a big difference. I think between physiology and the behavior, and that, and I, I yeah, study okay. both of them. Yeah, and yeah, I love yeah. both of them. Right, and right, I think right. we we forget about this as humans. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been almost in a fender bender where? You end up not getting in the car accident, but you're literally mm-hmm. your insides feel like you've been on a roller coaster yeah. and you're yeah. shaking and sweating. That's how live yeah, adrenaline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when something bad or scary happens to you, your autonomic nervous system is going to kick in. And auto means like a car, like it drives itself. You can't stop it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. a and within the the ANS or the autonomic nervous system, there's two parts. There's the sympathetic and parasympathetic division. Sympathetic is flight or fight. Oh my gosh, I'm running from that bear. Here I go. Where the parasympathetic is what they call rest and digest. So like after Thanksgiving, you know, you're, you're, you mm-hmm, can't, you mm-hmm. know, you're, you're going to process that turkey, right? Uh, but if we go to the sympathetic nervous system, that's when like things happen to help you survive. And so, Chris, we always talk about this in re- your your like blood supply to your reproductive system is going to mm. mostly be cut off because it's not super yeah, stress, important, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And same thing to your to your gut. And so when your sympathetic flight or flight kicks in, it's going to dilate your pupils so you can you know see the lion chasing you. It's going to increase mm. your heartbeat. You can't control it, and that's how lie detector tests work, right? You cannot control the sweating. You cannot control the heartbeat if you're lying. Are you speaking from experience? Because I've never taken one. Good point. Touche. No, I teach this stuff, and uh, but but I don't. I mean, I I think I would fail one just in general, just because I'd be like so nervous. Um, But yeah, your digestive system shuts down. Now, if you've ever been really scared, you might know that your urinary system. Relax. Yeah, could. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you yeah. might urinate yourself, right? Mm-hmm. I haven't had yeah, that happen. Pee, to me. Like or people maybe, are scared. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. Trying, I don't, people say that, like when you're really scared. Like, yeah, you know, you I've given birth yeah. a couple yeah. times, so that just happens to me. No matter, yeah. like, I don't have to be scared yeah. anymore for that to happen. <laughs> so, yeah. Too much information. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah. so back to the quakas. When their sympathetic system kicks in, what researchers think is happening is the muscles around the pouch that the Joey's sitting Mm -hmm. in also relaxes and the little guy probably just falls out or girl. So there's really no, there's no throwing. And first of all, if you look at, if you look at those little baby T-Rex hands and arms of a quokka, it can't throw. It doesn't even really have that range of motion and expelling. It's not like it's a, 
being ejected like a like a, a yeah. bad pitch or a baseball or something. It's most likely relaxed and then the baby falls out. And so the mom is not purposely, she's not in control. Let, okay. And now, okay, think about it, how evolution works, because that's one of my favorite things about this podcast. The last three years, learning about all, seeing the evolution of so many species, you know, the ones that drop the joeys or relax their pouches survive. So that has, those genetics are sustained. Whereas maybe somebody carrying a joey can't get away and gets caught. Exactly. You know, so you would think over time that's an adaptation that's stuck. Right. It's a horrible one, but it's stuck. Well, and I feel bad because it has this reputation as a bad parent, and it's partially justified, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But in the yeah. same sense, it's not contr- it's not choosing to do that, right? It, it's 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 its own body. It's just a evolutionary strategy. Uh, mm-hmm. But also keep in mind folks that uh like on Rotnest Island there are there aren't really any predators so this is like no, this is not no. something this is not a behavior that I that I can find like on a videotape or you know on the, yeah, it's just yeah. it has it's it has been recorded in other macropods it's rare but uh okay. it's it's not the 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 quaka is not throwing, ejecting, <laughs> baby, putting put, putting the cute little joey in front of itself yeah. as a shield. That's kind of how I pictured it when it first happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So in my in my oh, book, yes. considering they have a large teenager in their family group, one on the teat in their pouch, and then one, a bun in the oven on diapause, mm-hmm. I think they're mothers of the year. And and, yeah. and uh, oopsie, yeah. day, maybe not of the year, of the month, uh, okay. of the month. I would, I, I would, I would put them there. I put them, I put them, I put them just above the cassowary. Mom okay, yeah, It's yeah, also yeah. in Australia. You yeah. know, they, they are better moms than cassowaries. Yeah, I mean, oopsie, one drops. Whatever, it happens. <laughs> of the year, get out of here. So <laughs> funny, but yes, uh, I had a lot. I mean, trust me, I went down much, many more rabbit holes than I'm sharing. But that that is the Cliff Notes version. Uh-huh. And so, right. if you do hear that rumor now you've been educated and you can yeah, help you know the truth and help keep the better reputation of being the happiest most smiling animal in yes. the world <laughs> keep that one alive not the baby throwing and at least they're not a cassowary mom that's all yeah that's true <laughs> that's a good story though that's awesome that's awesome that's again why we love doing this it's amazing and good job on that deep dive now like andy said quokkas are vulnerable their populations are decreasing, especially in the mainland with logging and development around Perth and south of Perth. So anywhere estimates 7,500 to 15,000 total mature animals, up to maybe 7,000, I'll give the maxes, maybe 7,000 7, on the mainland. A rat nest has upwards of 8,000 and you know maybe 1,000 on Bald Island, but the population is probably not, it's probably in the middle, it's probably like around 12,000 left. So, you know, that's why they're vulnerable and they're heading towards extinction. But with things like social media, they become very uh, charismatic and people want to protect them. So that's good. And you were going to mention some of those people, right, And Some of the organizations. And Absolutely. Yeah, there's a couple of them. I want to give shouts out. We love our Australian fans down there. And first of all, where can you see quokkas in life, in real life? Of course, Western Australia, a Rottnest Island. Uh, check that out if you want to go see them in the wild. But depending on where you live in Australia, you can also find them at the Australian Zoo, the Perth Zoo, the Adelaide Zoo, the Sydney Zoo, and the Melbourne Zoo. 
which are all incredible and they're all on my bucket list. But my first shout out goes out to WWF, the World Wildlife Fund. They have a big presence in Australia and they have been really working hard on guaca conservation. First and foremost, WWF uh, works to help provide aid and rehabilitation for animals affected by the Australian uh, bushfires. And so that's super helpful. Uh, they also help keep track of quokkas in the wild. And secondly, they help keep track of quokkas in the wild uh, by either a capture and release program and then also using remote cameras to help do population counts and see how they are doing before and after natural disasters and things like that. And then they have really long-term quokka monitoring programs. And then lastly, WWF does a lot of long-term monitoring of quokka population and health. So they're not just looking at the incident of a fire or something like that. They, they're in there for the long haul, seeing how they rebound and what's happening with the vegetation and, and then how, how else they can speed their recovery. So WWF, love them. We need to get them on the podcast. They're always, Again, yeah, they just, yeah. I mean, they do incredible work. So they're, they're an inter, yeah. especially if you're international, they're a fun one to check out. And then I have to give a huge shout out to Alan Dixon. Uh, once again, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, he's known as the king of animal selfies. Uh, I watched a lot of his YouTube videos that are really well done and very, very educational. Uh, he also dispels the quokka uh, baby throwing myth on there, which was kudos yeah. to him. I love yeah. when people use facts and not just rumors. And uh, and then he also does a lot of promotion about their health and conservation. And then if you are going to be a tourist and do e ecotourism on Rottnest Island, how to do it well and how to make sure it's safe for the quokkas. And then from there, his love of quokkas and just animals and conservation in general uh, had him start what's known as the Quokka Hub. So you can follow them at Quokka, Q-U-O-K-K-A Hub, H-U-B. Um, or you can go to www.quokkas.co. And what Quokka Hub is or what it does is it has all these really nice products on there that are for lovers of quokkas, which... I'm sure if you weren't before this podcast, you are now, uh, where you can maybe buy a t-shirt with a cute quokka on it and things like that. Uh, and, and then Alan turns around and for any item purchased, he will plant seven trees. Nice, so nice. yeah, we'll put those, yeah. we'll, we'll put all these links yeah. up on the show notes so you can check it out. And then you can also follow him at at Daxon, D-A-X-O-N. Yeah. So it's just a great way how wanting to love and conserve a species such as the quokka has now uh, really benefited not only the quokka and their conservation, but you know trees. And when we talk, when we mm -hmm. think about mm -hmm. reducing our carbon footprint and things like that. So uh, he, and he's a great educator. So that's yeah. yeah. definitely- You should be trying to get him on, yeah. I know, he's, I was thinking uh, about reaching out to him. So yeah. hopefully yeah. Uh, hopefully he'll, yeah. he'll agree. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's he's pretty big on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, Chris, when you do go down to Rottnest Island, or for any of our listeners, there is a product out there called Chaka Quaka. And what it is, it's a product by Margaret River Chocolate Company. And so this is not real quakas. This is a milk chocolate, yummy, tasty really real looking chocolate quokka. Like who needs, who needs a chocolate okay. bunny this Easter season, right? You want a chocolate quokka. And then of yeah. course, uh, this is going to be by the Margaret river chocolate company and profits 
raised mm-hmm. help conservation research projects that go back into the quackas. So you can eat chocolate nice. and help save quackas, yeah. which is, you know, all a right, win-win right. for everyone well, involved. When I get to Rottnest Island and I'll buy you some chocolate and ship it back. Please <laughs> so, do. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Conservation tip of the week. I, I've been holding my tongue this whole podcast because I, I watched uh, David Attenborough's latest documentary, A you Life did. on Our Planet, last night. How, yeah, Pip do you have and to I buy it? it? How do you watch it? No, it's it's on Netflix. Okay, um, I'm going to put the links up on the show notes. You can go to attenboroughfilm.com, watch the preview. I am not kidding you. It everything Angie and I've been talking about for three years. And it, it's he talks about how he's seen it happen his whole life, from you know when he started doing his stuff back in the '50s. Over the last 70 years, how the planet has become inhospitable for many species. So I just, you've got to watch it. I'm telling you right now, spend the hour and a half, watch it. It will fire you up. It made, it fired me and Pip up and we both committed. We're like, right, we need to keep doing more. So we're going to keep doing more to help the environment. You know, she's doing her stuff and, and, uh, you know, I'm proud of her and, we're just going to keep keep fighting hard, Angie. You and I together, the stuff that we've done, we need to uh, to keep it up and spread the word, people. Please share this episode, any of your episodes with people, or have somebody you know watch that film. Watch that film. Awesome. It's definitely on my bucket list. and I, I, I wanted to try to figure out how I could get my students to watch it. I would assume a lot of them have Netflix, but, uh, you know. I have to make sure it's free for everybody. So yeah, I know that's I something know. I'm going to look like, into, but I, yeah. I have this little challenge for us. How about I try to get yeah. Ellen Dixon, King of animal selfies on the podcast and you try to get David Attenborough. Sir David is that email is, is coming out soon. I will try to chase him down because um, one of my, my biggest heroes, him and Jane Goodall, everything they've done and, this next generation coming up, you know, it's, this is the deciding decade. Everybody knows that we keep saying it and we all have to do our part. So anyways, great episode. We've got some big fun species coming for the holiday season. This was one of them. You know, we, uh, we kicked it off with belugas and then we had Captain Paul Watson. Now we have quakas and I know we've got some fun species coming for the holidays. So uh, stay tuned. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share, join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.